Hey there, it's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army. Grace and peace to each and every one of you today. We are uh, working our way through the Book of Acts here in our worship and study time, and I am so grateful that you come and join with us each week. We are going to look at a really short piece of text today. In fact, I plan to only go over about half of a story that's usually told as a single tale. Because what's in here is that important. Often, what happens though, is we, we hear some story more than once, or we, we think we know what it's about because we've been taught in certain things about it, and the main story just kind of gets lost inside of this one that's been built up in our heads. Now, it's not necessarily that the one in our heads is wrong, but it's harder to assign importance to something or to learn new things about something that we're familiar with. Um... Think of it uh, in terms of uh, Jesus saying a prophet's not welcome in his hometown. All those people are familiar with him. They saw him grow up. They saw him as a boy running around playing tag with their kids. And then they see him come back as a preacher and they're like, Ooh, little Jesus. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that. No. So before I even get into the scripture, I want to talk about some of the things that we know about a certain Bible person. His name was Saul. Now, Saul was born to a devout Israelite family in the city of Tarsus. That was in the region of Asia Minor called Cilicia, which in modern terms was um, along the coast of Turkey. It had been under Roman control for a little more than a century when Saul was born, and his parents were Roman citizens. I gotta tell you, that wasn't a privilege easily obtained by an Israelite, which suggests that they were a fairly well-to-do family. There's a substantial sum of money that had to be paid to gain a place on the rolls of Rome, and no peasant family would have ever been able to afford it. We don't know exactly when he was born, but scholars think it was around 2 BC or BCE, depending on which one of those you prefer. Um, that's on our calendar, 2 BC, uh, probably six or seven years after Jesus was born. We know that Saul's family was devout in their Jewish faith because Saul wrote about his upbringing in some of his letters, including this passage in the letter to the Philippians, where he said, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee. So his parents instilled in him a sense of his place in the people of God, and they let him know that they valued the traditions of their faith by having him circumcised according to the law of Moses. We know that he was raised in the faith and that he was a sharp-minded young man. Um, all Hebrew children were raised with stories of their people, memorizing the scriptures, learning the oral traditions of the sages, being taught the distinctive patterns of worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And we know that Paul was a good student both because we know from his letters how well-trained he was and the amazing skill he had at using many different types of rhetoric and other writing styles. But we also know that he became a student of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a Jewish rabbi who was part of the great Sanhedrin, the uh, Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. And this position of an apprentice to uh, a rabbi, particularly a great rabbi, was not a position that could be bought. It was something that would have been earned through hard work and proven skill, especially to sit under Gamaliel's teaching. Gamaliel was no ordinary rabbi. He was one who had authority to create and teach his own interpretations of scripture. One who we know from his name, having come up earlier in the book of Acts, one who we know could say something that would fly in the face of the desires of the other Sanhedrin members 
and they would still listen to and abide by his words. Gamaliel was kind of the man, um, as it were. So Saul, he came from a family of status. He became an apprentice to a person of power based on his merit. And he was a Pharisee as well, meaning that he set holy living at the center of his belief system and his life work. So, you know, Pharisees, they didn't just follow the 613 rules of the Torah. Instead, they established rules around the rules, pushing people to live perfect lives in hopes that uh, enough holiness would be shown to persuade God to send the long-awaited Messiah, who they believed was going to be a war leader who would raise a standard in Israel, overthrow Rome, and then lead their nation to victory over the world. Saul wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a perfect Pharisee. He followed the laws, the rules, and the traditions, all in exacting detail. He was a guy who was certainly going places. With his pedigree and his experience, he was very likely headed towards his own seat on the council. But he wasn't content to rest on his accomplishments. He felt that he needed to do more. Now we know that he participated in the mob that lynched Stephen. And that he became the leader of the movement that sought to put an end to what he believed was a great threat to Judaism and to Israel's relationship with their God. Those Jesus followers. Now, it's not like this group of Jesus people was the first one to stray from commonly accepted practices of Judaism. There were the Essenes. They were a sect that had withdrawn from pretty much all contact with life in Israel. In fact, they'd withdrawn so much they largely could be ignored, and pretty much they, they were. John the Baptist, he had come and built up this big following in his own community of people who also believed that the temple faith had strayed from God's original intent for his people. That could have been trouble. But John had been focused on restarting Torah faith, not on setting it aside. And when John was arrested and executed by Herod, it, it really seemed to deflate the power behind his movement. But those Jesus people, they were over the top. Their beliefs were so radical, so different from the rest. First, their so-called Messiah, he was no one of importance. And even though he had drawn quite a following, he never organized them to fight. He never moved to seize power. And he spoke against the temple leadership instead of partnering with them. And in the months since he had been executed, his followers had started claiming that he was alive, which was, of course, impossible. And as Gamaliel's apprentice, Saul would likely have been present at that trial of Jesus and would have seen him hanging, crucified outside the city. The Romans were ruthless overlords, and when they wanted you dead, you died. People didn't get off crosses alive, and the idea of resurrection before the end of days was something that a Pharisee would have just considered ridiculous, as Saul did. And lately, those followers of Jesus, they'd have been even farther out of the norm. They were starting to teach things like how Pharisees misinterpreted scripture, or, or that even tax collectors and sex workers had a place in society. Psst. It's like they had no respect for tradition. Why, Saul had even heard that after he began organizing to push those heretics out of Jerusalem, some of them had gone to Samaria to find converts among the rabble there. I mean, if he needed any more evidence that they needed to be forced back into line, that was probably it right there. 
Now, Saul was able to get support from the other temple leaders and even the high priest, and he began to round those people up and demand that they recant, to turn away from the teaching of Jesus and get back to the established authorities instead. He destroyed those who refused, he wrecked their reputations, he, he, he made their shame public, even having them beaten with the prescribed 39 lashes, ordering that the rest of the people shun them so that no more would fall into their religious apostasy. Saul wanted to restore the way things had been before. But then, then he heard something that really made him mad. Not only had some of those that he had chased out of Jerusalem set up branches of their misguided sect in other cities nearby, they were still teaching about Jesus, still making new converts. He couldn't let that go on for one minute longer. He knew he could do something about it. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul got the endorsement from the highest religious authority, and with that, he'd be able to go to Damascus and get permission from the leadership there to bind those troublemakers over for trial in Jerusalem. Beaten and shamed if they still refuse to recant their dead Messiah's teachings, Saul may very well be able to have them killed as instigators, just like Jesus was. Hey, it's not what he wanted. It's not like he wants to kill them. They're, they're bringing it on themselves by simply refusing to accept the truth that they just need to see things the same way he does. After all, Saul knew that he was better versed in the teachings of the temple than almost any other person alive. So he gathered together a large group of like-minded men to make the journey. When they got there, these men would be their job to help him hunt down the vermin, no matter what sewers they were trying to hide in. And when they were all assembled, they rode out of Jerusalem. Now, Damascus was in Syria. It's a, a little more than 130 miles outside of Jerusalem, kind of northeast. It, it wouldn't take a motivated group traveling light more than a few days to cover that distance, even though the terrain was mountainous, not if they pushed hard. And even if they kind of took their time, they could probably easily make it from place to place between Sabbath days. No traveling allowed on the Sabbath, remember. Saul and his men certainly would not violate that rule. The trip was uneventful, at least to start. Late, though, on the last day of their trip, as they were getting near their destination, something happened. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. It's not just a light, it was blinding. Those who rode the donkeys in the vanguard, probably including Saul, who would have been right at the front there, they would have struggled to control their mounts as they lunged, they reared in fright. And well, it's possible that this light was just a beam like a searchlight shining down on them. If you look at the you know paintings and stuff from the Middle Ages, that's what they all show. It's possible that that's all there was, but... This reference to light from heaven flashing around them says that Luke is suggesting something more like a wall of lightning or multiple lightning strikes crashing around them. Let me tell you, I've been next to a lightning strike. And when you are near that kind of energy, energy uh, discharge, 
all of the hair on your body stands up on end and your skin just crackles. It feels charged. To be near a single bolt of lightning just for the second or so that it lasts is unnerving. To be caught in a storm of lightning is one of the most frightening events produced on our planet. Not that a giant flashlight would have been any less frightening to people who had never experienced anything like that, so I suppose it's possible that that's all there was, but I prefer the more dramatic description myself. Either way, those who weren't thrown from their transportation threw themselves to the ground in fear and trembling, and Saul did too. Then something even more intimidating happened. Verse 4 says, He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, there's an old Hebrew phrase for a voice coming from the heavens in a blaze of life. It's it's a, a blaze of light, excuse me. Uh, an old Hebrew phrase for this voice coming from the heavens in a blaze of light. It's called bat kol, and it is a divine occurrence. The voice of God or his agent speaking with his authority. And that is a phrase that Saul certainly would have been familiar with, as it occurs many places in the Hebrew scriptures. One of my favorite historical references to a bat call took place in Exodus chapter 20. The entire people of Israel who'd been freed from Egypt came together around the mountain that God had designated to hear what he had to say. So they were, at least in theory, prepared for what might happen. They were expecting to hear from God. But thunder roared in a way that no one had ever heard. The mountain lit up as if it were on fire with lightning. Trumpets blared, and then the voice of God spoke to them. Exodus chapter 20 says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the passage we now refer to as the giving of the Ten Commandments. And according to the oral tradition, the people only heard two of those commands before they were so terrified by the light and the voice from heaven that they covered their ears and begged for it to stop. And this is captured in scripture too. Skip down in Exodus 20 to verse 18. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we will die. And as much as I want to say, what's wrong with them? I would love to hear God's voice. I'm not so confident that I would still think that if it happened. Based on the evidence, I would probably wet myself in fear. Now, we don't know if Saul needed to change robes later, but we do know that he was able to gasp out a single question when his voice spoke to him directly. Verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And with that, Saul's world changed. I don't care how devoted to the Lord you are. You don't expect a voice from heaven. Even the people who'd been told to expect a voice from heaven weren't ready for it when it happened. And if that weren't enough, Saul's not just hearing a voice from heaven. He's hearing Jesus speaking to him. Jesus, the man he thought was unworthy, who he had cheered the execution of, whose followers he'd let attacks on, who he had demanded that they recant their belief in, who he had been so certain 
so completely certain was dead and buried and fake and not the Messiah and not from God. But this is Jesus who is speaking to him as a voice from heaven, from God, bat call, telling him to get up and go to the city where he would be told what to do. There's no way for him to wrap his mind around what's happening in that moment. How could it be Jesus? He saw he'd had people killed for believing in Jesus. What, what, who, how? No words. The others with him, were they hearing this too? Or was this some, some kind of a stroke or a dream or, or what? But verse 7 says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. <clears throat> and that was it. <coughs> Excuse me. That was it. The light was gone. The lightning ended. The silence is they each scrabbled for something, anything they could say. Some way to make sense of what they just heard. Verse 8 says, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I see Saul lying there for a moment, hands over his head as if somehow this was going to protect him from whatever divine wrath was about to pour out on him. But after a moment, Finding that he was still alive, Saul stood up, trying to open eyes that he didn't realize he had closed while he was laying face down on the road. But it wouldn't open. Everything was still dark. He tried again and then again before realizing that his eyes were already open, but he still couldn't see. Then the voices of the others came, hesitant at first, then faster, louder, seeking reassurance where there was none to be had. And they realized that Saul can't see. He can't see at all. So these men, they helped their leader into Damascus to the house of an associate there. And as they were doing that, I imagine their discussion is pretty somber. They heard the voice. They saw the light. They didn't know what to do with it all. When they're trying to get Saul to talk to him, I, I, I just Saul, I'm sure, just said, just take me into the city. In fact, he probably repeated that over and over like a mantra as he tried to get that fabulous brain of his to give him even one idea about what the heck just happened and why he wasn't dead or judged and what happened and what was he supposed to do about it and what happened and what did it mean? So he stumbled along as one of his men took his hand and walked him the last little bit into the city. When he got to the house and they let him in, I don't think Saul had anything to say. I think... He just let himself be shown to a bed and then he sat or laid or stood or sat or knelt praying at somehow just being there, turning it all over in his head, not quite knowing, but at the same time, absolutely knowing that what just happened changed everything. And he had to figure out what it meant. What happened anyway? This is where we're going to leave Saul for now. He's got some stuff to work through. We can't help him with that. He's got to do it on his own. But what, if anything, does this mean to us? 
Well, there's a whole bunch of points we could take from this section. Uh, being educated and convinced that what we think we know doesn't mean we're right. That'd be a good lesson to learn. It's something we should all keep in mind. But God doesn't need us to defend him. And that's what Saul was doing, right? He thought God wanted or needed things to be a certain way. And that if they weren't, it was his job to crush the things he thought God didn't like. But obviously not his job. And we could make points out of this about how anger and hatred make us blind to the things of God. Saul being struck blind seems to be like a physical version of the spiritual blindness he'd been experiencing his whole life. What's blinding you and how can you learn to see again? Oh, there, see, there's a lesson for you. Is that enough? You want to take one of those? No, how about one more? It's one I mentioned before. Even the devout don't really expect to hear God's voice. I'm going to repeat that. Even the devout don't really expect to hear God's voice. God has spoken to his people in uncountable ways. A voice from heaven? Fortunately, that's relatively rare. As much as we want to think we would like God to just speak to us, to tell us what we need to know, the truth is, he already has. He sent us Jesus. We can know all that we need to know by just taking the time to listen to what Jesus said. To look at what Jesus did. Saul could have done that. He could have done that. It would have saved him some grief and he would have hurt a lot less people if he had just been open to hear what Jesus was saying. So let me suggest that we all need to do that. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, maybe start by reading the Gospels. Not all at once, mind you. I mean, you can if you really want. That's great. But none of them is particularly long. Just pick one and read through it. Hear what Jesus has to say. See how he lived. See how he interacted with those around him. And then follow the way of Jesus. How about it? Hey, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you have come to in this life, wherever you think you're going, remember this, you have nothing to fear because wherever you are, wherever you're going, God is already there. What you need to do is go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. See you next time when we're going to find out what happens next. <laughs>